0: Welcome to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Krug, president of the Franklin News Foundation and publisher of the Center Square. We built the Center Square Newswire service to address the clear gap in state and federal reporting. The Center Square Newswire delivers more than 75 original news stories each day from across the country, helping Americans understand what elected officials and bureaucrats in state and federal government are doing on behalf of the taxpaying public in their home state and, of course, at the federal level. Here's some of the stories you may have missed this week at the Center Square. In the Midwest, a federal judge who once ruled plaintiffs challenging Illinois' gun and magazine ban may be able to prove their case now as the option of striking the law down based on the merits. Illinois' ban on more than 170 semi-automatic rifles, shotguns, and pistols was enacted on January 10th. The law also bans the sale and possession of handgun magazines over 15 rounds and rifle magazines over 10 rounds. Firearm owners with such guns purchased before January 10th have until January 1st, 2024, to register their firearms attachments and fifty caliber ammunition or face potential criminal penalties. Around our nation's capital, crime rates per capita in the D.C. metro region, which includes Northern Virginia and Maryland, increased by 9% in 2022, reaching a rate of 18.3 crimes for 1,000 residents. This data comes from an annual report released Wednesday, Revealing a staggering 83,000 more calls for service to primary agents participating in the study. Across the country, there's financial trouble in paradise. Hawaii faced a significant fiscal challenge at the close of fiscal year 2022, as a new report reveals a shortage of funds to cover $11.4 billion in outstanding bills. The state has $11.2 billion available to offset a hefty $22.6 billion in bills which translates to $15,000 per taxpayer. In all, Hawaii carries a taxpayer burden of $23,100 per taxpayer, as detailed in Truth and Accounting's State of the States report. Truth and Accounting evaluates states annually based on their fiscal well-being, and this year, Hawaii maintained its position in the bottom five, even though some financial aspects improved, joining Hawaii in the bottom five were Massachusetts, Illinois, Connecticut, and New Jersey. On this week's Center Square Radio Hour, we'll explore more top stories with the reporters who broke them from those that originate in Washington, D.C., to the oftentimes underreported state stories with national relevance. We'll round out our coverage with economic insights from Dr. D. DeVonghi, Ph.D. economist, and also bring you the latest in K-12 public education from our Chalkboard News team. The Center Square is a 501c3 independent nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. To ensure that the Center Square continues to deliver the news like no other media outlet in America today, we ask you to go to franklinnews.org and make a tax-deductible, charitable contribution to support the Center Square and the Center Square Radio Hour. Over the next hour, we are going to check in with our reporting team on a number of stories that made headlines in the past week. In Washington, D.C., this week has been a busy one, deciding who should be the next Speaker of the House. In Illinois, Chicago is set to hold the Democratic National Convention next August, but Governor J.B. Pritzker says they will need federal help to pull it off amidst the migrant crisis. The Biden administration is funding long-duration storage projects to help counteract wind and solar power's lack of energy production capacity. We'll be right back with all that and more in the Center Square Radio Hour.
1: Breaking news, that's what the Center Square does best. The stories other media outlets refuse to report, the Center Square's breaking them all the time. Stories about government waste and political spending. Stories about partisan agendas that hijack your tax dollars. The Center Square has it all covered and delivers the biggest news to your inbox as it happens. Sign up now for your state Center Square newsletters at thecentersquare.com. That's thecentersquare.com.
0: Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. This week has been a flurry of headlines as the House of Representatives have work toward choosing a new speaker. Dan McCaleb, Executive Editor for the Center Square, is here to tell us more.
2: Joining me again today is the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, Casey Harper. How are you, Casey?
0: Doing well, Dan. How are you?
2: I am doing well, but uh, the news isn't doing so well, Casey. We are recording this on Friday, October 13th. The Palestinian terrorist group Hamas carried out a brutal sneak attack on Israel last weekend, killing well over a 1,000 innocent civilians, including young children, in just brutal fashion. More than 20 Americans also were killed in the surprise attack. Israel, of course, retaliated and appeared ready to be, uh, as we're recording this, appear ready to begin a ground invasion into Gaza to destroy the terrorists. Now I want to talk about what's going on with the U.S. House Speaker position and the tumultuous attempt by majority Republicans to replace ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Earlier this week Republicans appeared ready to select House Majority Leader Steve Scalise as McCarthy's successor, uh, but fierce opposition from conservatives delayed any full house vote. And late last night, Scalise took himself out of the running. What's going on here, Casey?
3: Chaos. You know, we, we thought that we were at a time of chaos when the infamous Donald Trump was in the White House. And I think people maybe thought when he left that politics would return to some, you know, um, nostalgic sense of normal. But I think those days are behind us, you know, at least for the, for the near future, because chaos, um, the House has descended into total chaos. The um, Republicans are no closer. They're actually further away from finding a speaker than they were earlier this week. Um, Scalise, you know, you said conservative Republicans opposed him, and that's definitely true, but it was more than that because Scalise, you know, uh, Kevin McCarthy told reporters, of course, the former House Speaker McCarthy, he told reporters that, you know, Scalise had told the other um, Republican lawmakers that he would get up to 150 um, supporters by. You know, before his this next conference meeting, and he didn't have that, and so this isn't. We're not talking about this, you know, eight or so lawmakers who stalled McCarthy. Saying we're talking, it seems like at least you know fifty, maybe seventy, maybe more lawmakers were not ready to commit to Scalise. Now, from things I've heard and I'm seeing, I think that Scalise was not willing to kind of go to them and cater and say I'm going to do this for you I'm going to do this for you. He was I think he was more taking the approach of this is what I'm going to do, you can support me or not. And in the in the temperature of this congress that wasn't good enough. So now there it's really the ball is going to be in Jim Jordan's court, but I'm not sure that anybody wants to be up for the speakership race right now. It's probably a lose-lose. I mean, Jim Jordan could very easily end up in the same position Scalise was in, which is he has enough support To um, be expected to get the position, but not enough to even be able to get close. So he needs 217 votes. Um, Meanwhile, Democrats uh, continually keep nominating um, Hakeem Jeffries, who is really the the Democratic leader, right? He's Nancy Pelosi's replacement. There has been talks um, of finding some kind of um, candidate for speakership that the Democrats could support, but I think that's pretty optimistic, and I can't. I cannot envision the name of that Republican, Dan, that Democrats would say, yeah, I'll vote for that Republican to be Speaker of the House.
2: Let's speak briefly about Jordan, um, the Republican from Ohio who has been the House Judiciary Chairman, has been leading the investigation into the Biden family business dealings, um, etc. He certainly probably doesn't have the support of moderate Republicans
3: in the House, does he? I mean, it's hard to know. You would probably say in normal circumstances, no. But there's an unusual pressure now, Dan, because just a few weeks, just before uh, before Thanksgiving, mid-November, the government is set to shut down. And when we had a Speaker of the House and everything was in order and we had months leading up to the last government shutdown, we almost didn't make it. I mean, we came right up to the borderline, right, and almost shut the government down. And here we are, basically a month away from a government shutdown not anywhere close to having a speaker, and the reason I say all that, and, and plus you, you mentioned Israel, uh, there's a increasing pressure for Congress to pass some kind of aid, um, you know, munitions and financial aid increase for Israel in their war against you know the Hamas terrorists in Gaza, but all that pressure from the shutdown in the Israel war is putting more pressure on these moderate Republicans to just pick somebody, and I think that is becoming. You know, the American sentiment is, guys, just pick somebody, you know, and so that pressure uh, is going to be it's going to make it hard for moderate Republicans to hold out for, quote unquote, the perfect option. You know, I think Jordan does face a tough road. It's going to be hard for him to get support from any kind of moderate Republicans. But if it's not Jordan, who's it going to be?
2: Well, well, let me throw one other sort of sounds like a far fetched scenario out there. Is there any situation where you, you could see Jeffries, the Democrat leader,
3: be elected speaker? You know, I do actually think it is possible. Um, it would, It's just going to come down to probably the handful of very moderate Republicans who say they're going to you know do it for the good of the country. And maybe they tried to do it just long enough to fund the government and then vacate him, something like that. There's also been talk about somehow trying to get the temporary speaker, the pro temp to um, have his time, just give him the powers of speaker just long enough to fund the government and then remove it. You know, that is possible. I think, I mean, I do, I think we're kind of closer and closer to moving to a very unusual thing in modern politics where we have a bipartisan pick for a speaker. But it's hard to imagine that because, you know, for all the hate that Republican conservative, you know, holdouts got for ousting McCarthy, every single Democrat just about voted to remove McCarthy also. So I think they are... I mean, I understand why they did it. They wanted the Republicans to be in chaos. They wanted to stop the Republicans from having any of their agenda pass through. Of course, they don't support McCarthy, but um, they kind of are complicit in a sense in some of this um, chaos because they I think they wanted to watch the Republicans burn a little bit.
2: Well, Casey, of course, this is a developing story, could change any moment. Our listeners can keep up with this developing story at
0: TheCenterSquare.com, but we are out of time. Thank you to our DC team for that update. Next August in Illinois, the Democratic Party will be choosing a leader of its own, a candidate for the presidency. The Democratic National Convention will be held in Chicago, and Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker is confident they could pull it off if they get support from the federal government in responding to the migrant crisis. Let's go back to Dan McHale to hear more on this story.
2: Joining me is Greg Bishop, the Center Square's Illinois Capitol Bureau senior reporter and editor. How are you today, Greg?
0: That's
2: a lot added to my title, Dan.
1: I'm doing well. Yourself?
2: I'll tell you what, it's a mouthful, too. <laughs> maybe
1: maybe <laughs> we just gotta shorten it. You could just say I'm the guy on the ground in Springfield.
2: We are recording this on Thursday, October 12th. Greg, Chicago will host the 2024 National Democratic Convention next summer, where President Joe Biden is expected to be renominated ahead of next year's November presidential election. But many people are wondering how the ongoing migrant crisis in Chicago will impact that. More than 17,000 border crossers have arrived in the city over the past year, and Chicago, like cities across the country, is struggling to deal with it. There are many tentacles to this story, Greg, but let's start here. On CBS's Face the Nation this week, Governor Pritzker was asked if Chicago and Illinois officials were going to be prepared to host in the middle of the migrant crisis. How did the governor respond to that?
1: Yeah, he says that uh, they will be prepared, but he provided a caveat of as long as the federal government provides help. Uh, And he's said time and again, state taxpayers have been paying hundreds of millions of dollars. He's put the number at more than half a billion dollars between state and city of Chicago taxpayers uh, to help with the uh, ongoing influx of non-citizens. But at the same time, the governor has also said that the federal taxpayers have to provide some kind of assistance. So again, he says that uh, they'll be ready to handle the security questions around the DNC next year with the ongoing and what seems to be increased influx of non-citizens but he's saying that the federal government needs to step up and not just provide more resources but he also says that it's as the governor says uh, quote border politicians that should also be addressed uh, because he claims that they're only sending these migrants, these non citizens, to blue cities and blue states, as the governor characterizes it. Uh, but really, if you take a step back and look at the situation on the ground on the border, Dan, uh, and you can see all of this being reported regularly with the center square.com, you've got serious problems with those border communities. They're running out of resources and they're taking in somewhere around 28 million people just in the past fiscal year, according to the federal government. So uh, it's a it's a situation that even the governor has said is untenable. But uh, he claims that uh, they'll be able to handle it just as long as they have some help from the federal government uh, heading into the uh, the Democratic National Convention next year.
2: Yeah. Quick point about the border towns, Greg. Earlier this year, the Center Square covered President Joe Biden's um, first and as far as I know, only visit to the border when he visited El Paso, a town that's really at the heart of the illegal border crossings, um, in the center of the universe when it comes to that. They had thousands and thousands of migrants who were living on the streets. I think it was January of this year when President Biden visited El Paso. And ahead of that, city of El Paso officials, federal and state officials, essentially cleared the streets, So President Biden, you know, didn't have to see the worst of it. Do you envision Chicago having to do something like that?
1: Yeah. And setting up some kind of uh, perimeter of sorts uh, to ensure that the national spotlight cameras may not see some of the tents. That are being set up. I mean, keep in mind, Dan, uh, we haven't even gotten into the winter of 2023 yet, and uh, we'll see how it all uh, falls into place. But uh, you've got the city ready and even the state seeming to cover some of those costs. Uh, The taxpayers on the hook for 30 million dollars in military base camp tents that uh, are going to be set up heading into the winter. Um, So the optics obviously is one thing, but when you really get down to this and especially hearing about the stories on the border, the humanitarian issues at hand here are also uh, of top concern because the migrants are here in Illinois as they are in New York, as they are in other states and cities across the country, sanctuary state and cities across the country. So how that's going to be handled, um, not just fiscally, but with a humanitarian lens uh, is going to be interesting, especially around the optics of the Democratic National Convention and the Windy City.
2: Yeah. Speaking of uh, sanctuary cities and states, Greg, uh, Chicago is a sanctuary city. Uh, Illinois is a sanctuary state. Texas's governor, who's not the only one, not the only elected official who has uh, this busing mission in place, moving uh, migrants north to sanctuary cities because of their self-declared welcoming cities. But a new poll of Chicago residents show that a majority don't favor Chicago being a sanctuary city. Just briefly touch on that if you could.
1: Yeah, M3 Strategies is a polling and consulting firm, and they did a poll of around 700 voters across the demographics, and they found that the ideas of sanctuary city policies are not favorable. Uh, The poll essentially found that the majority of people polled don't like the idea of Chicago being a sanctuary city.
2: All right, it doesn't look like this crisis is going to end anytime soon because of the busses. Keep arriving. Our listeners can keep up with this ongoing story at
0: thecentersquare.com. Thank you, Dan and Greg, for that update. As the migrant crisis continues, the federal government is hoping to avoid crisis in another area energy. The U.S. Department of Energy is funding projects to develop long term storage capabilities in efforts to make renewable energy more reliable. And thus reduce the risk of blackouts. Joining me to tell us more is Tom Gannert, managing editor for the Center Square. Tom, good to be with you. Oh, thank you, Tom. Let's go through the story. You know, uh, it was published this week at the Center Square. We're talking about the changes to battery storage, and I guess it's really this is about harnessing the energy that comes from wind and solar, which is one of the fundamental problems of the naturally derived uh, energy sources. Yes.
4: Yeah, let's start from the what the heart of the issue is, and that is the government wants wind and solar because it's better for the environment, but it's the least dependable uh, source of energy. So I'll give you an example. The Energy Information Administration rates the sources of energy by their capacity. So if you're operating all the time producing energy, your capacity would be 100%. The two lowest are wind and solar. Wind is, uh, its capacity is 34.6%. Solar is 24.6. Okay, that's 2021. That's it, the Energy Information Administration. Okay, those are the two lowest in terms of capacity. The highest is nuclear, 93%. So a lot of what this is going on here is that if wind's 34.6% and solar's 24.6%, you need something to back them up. Right now, that's mostly nuclear and coal, and they're trying to get away from that. So a alternative would be long-duration energy storage technology, and that's what the story was about, what the Biden administration is spending $325 million uh, for 15 projects across 17 states for the development of this type of technology. So what they're looking for is what the definition of long-duration energy storage is between up to eight hours to a hundred hours of electricity. Okay, so most energy storage technologies are performed from four to six hours. So that's what they're looking to improve on.
0: Can you walk us through the numbers and, and talk about what the what the capacities mean in terms of ener- energy production, and how do the capacities of renewables compare to more traditional energy sources? You referenced nuclear at ninety three percent. I mean, somewhat something of a lost in understanding why we're not um, more vested in, in nuclear. I mean it was at one point in time it was scary technology. I think that we've demonstrated here in the United States in particular over the last 50 years that we've been able to manage, you know, nuclear plants with high levels of of capability, but it's always wind and solar that seem to be, you know, the in en vogue energy source for the future.
4: Right. Well, according to the Energy Information Administration The top sources of energy that meet the demand for energy consumption are petroleum at 35%, natural gas at 33, and coal at about 10. The bottom three, wind 3.8%, solar 1.9, and geothermal less than 1%. So the uh, renewables are not meeting our demand right now. So a lot of this money that's being pumped in is to try and up those numbers. So there's a, a figure right now. The story we did talked about just in 15 projects, President Biden was uh, investing 325 million. But from 2019 to 2022, government and companies invested 58 billion dollars around the world in long duration storage energy. So that's where a lot of the money is being put right now in terms of trying to find an alternative that can back up wind and solar because the problem with wind is is that if it's, the wind's not blowing, you're not getting energy and solar generated power can't be used at night. So that's where the projects are being used in terms of where the money's being spent.
0: Where's the story go from here? I mean, what's, um, you know, I mean, are, are these these programs that are that are being funded at this point? You know, what's the anticipated duration of the projects and what do we hope to learn? I mean, obviously that this is designed or should be designed to improve the gaps to to where these, you know, these energy sources need to be from the standpoint of being able to capture and and harness. But what's next?
4: I would say the Yale School of Environment came out with a report that said uh, Form Energy, which is a startup company backed by Bill Gates, announced a project in 2020. And the goal was to have these long duration energy storage go up to 150 hours. That would be how long it could provide energy for. So that's what they're trying to do. But I, you know, the bigger picture is that, in terms of a story that we're going to be publishing pretty soon, maybe as early as this week, is all the amount of federal subsidies uh, that are going to different forms of energy. So, for example, federal subsidies for uh, renewables is fifteen point six billion dollars in fiscal year two thousand twenty-two. The next closest was natural gas and petroleum liquids at $2.3 billion. So renewables are getting seven times the federal subsidies that natural gas is. So what's nuclear at? Subsidies? $390 million compared to $15.6 billion for renewables. And you asked uh, about nuclear, what was the problem with nuclear? That's a question that I've been dealing with for the last five years. And the people that I've talked to about it is, uh, believe it or not, the impact of What my generation knows is the China Syndrome, you know, the movie that came out that scared people. And then it happened again with Tsunami in Japan. And and if you go look at the Sierra Clubs, those organizations, they do not support uh, nuclear power.
0: Well, I appreciate the time as always. Tom Gannert, uh, Managing Editor, located in Michigan. Great to be with you. Thank you. That will do it for the first half of the Center Square Radio Hour. After the break, we will look at more top stories from across the nation. How many terrorists were apprehended at the southern and northern border in fiscal year 2023? How is the Kalamazoo, Michigan School District responding to a high school where at least half of the students graduated in 2023 without meeting state or district standards? What is the economic impact of the war between Israel and Hamas? All that and more when we return on the Center Square Radio Hour. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. More known or suspected terrorists were apprehended attempting to enter the U.S. in fiscal year 2023 than in any other year to date. Dan McCaleb is here to tell us more.
2: Joining me today is the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, Casey Harper. How are you, Casey? Doing good, Dan. How are you? I am doing fine. Thank you. We are recording this on Friday, October 13th, Casey, as the world holds its collective breath as uh, Israel prepares a ground invasion in Gaza, a very tumultuous uh, region of the country, Um, there's concerns back home, too, about what could happen here. Since President Joe Biden uh, has taken office, there have been more than 8 million border encounters um, since he changed America, US uh, immigration policy. Um, that number includes well over a million what, what are called gotaways, uh, folks who evade um, capture or apprehension at the border, get into the country unbeknownst uh, uh, to federal agents. Um, and uh, the Border Patrol recently released um, the number of uh, suspected and known terrorists who have been who have been apprehended. These are the ones. These are not the Godaways. These have been apprehended, and it's at least 659 just in fiscal 2023 alone. But that does not include Godaways, the folks we don't know. We don't know how many of those are known or suspected terrorists. Law enforcement across the country, including sheriff's groups, are raising an alarm about what, about what that could mean, and are and, and essentially are saying, you know, we need to do something and close these borders. We don't know who's in the country because of all of these godaways. And again, as war erupts in the Middle East, the leader of Hamas terrorist organization yesterday for called for jihad in the United States you know, against Americans and against Jewish folks. Because we don't know who's in the country, who's illegally entered the country. Is there a cause for concern here?
3: You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I think the, uh, the federal intelligence apparatus in the U.S. has tried to downplay this to say this is more you know conjecture than um, than real hard uh, data or evidence, but you know uh, that <laughs> that doesn't do much to assuage people's fear when, when we see what's happening um, in the Middle East when Israeli intelligence reportedly had no idea that this attack from Hamas was coming, and of course our own intelligence in the U.S. has been caught on the back heels before, and so you know you got to take all that with a grain of salt. I mean, I think it's perfectly reasonable to have an extra eye out right now when You have such a brazen attack from these Hamas terrorists in Israel, which is, you know, it's, I think it's easy for people to write off the Middle East a little bit, but Israel is a very developed um, country. It's like very wealthy. There, there's a lot of um, very strong military defense, uh, security there. And, and yeah, this they were able to get by. Of course, the border between Gaza and Israel is very strongly guarded. So, this was not. This was a pretty sophisticated operation, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So, the idea that something like that could happen here, uh, of course, is something to consider, especially when, as you reference, and we can get into more, um, the federal data shows that there are hundreds of terrorists on, or hundreds of people on the terrorist watch list coming into the U.S. every year. Then those are just the ones we know about. You referenced that Godaways number, so there's millions of Godaways, people who you know, maybe an agent just kind of sees them and, and isn't able to catch them. Um, and who knows how many um, suspected or actual terrorists are in that group. And of course, we know from 9-11, it only takes a handful. You don't need an army to do a lot of devastation or wreak a lot of havoc in the U.S. It can be just, just a handful of um, well-planned terrorists can do a lot of damage in the U.S.
2: Yeah. Members of the American Sheriff Alliance met Recently, essentially issued a warning, calling for immediate action because of what they are saying are these heightened terrorist uh, uh, threats against the U- U.S. homeland. Uh, they put out a statement. Alliance members uh, discussed quote the continued pressure and strain on resources due to the lack of border enforcement throughout the United States, including the alarming statistics of encounters with individuals found to be on the terrorist watch list, also known as the terrorist screening data set. The alliance notes that the apprehensions of known and suspect, suspected terrorists. And remember, this is not just, you know, folks from Mexico and Central America and South America, um, trying to enter the U.S. illegally since Biden's to office. There are people from 150 nations across like, the world who have been apprehended, including some of these Middle East countries, including from China, including from, um, Russia. And then we, we both referenced the gotaway, uh, numbers, the folks who, who enter between ports of entry. Um, you know, border patrol has drones Another other video surveillance. We might not have, you know, agents right there on hand to capture these folks, but we have video of them entering the country illegally, getting past any kind of security, and it's a free-for-all for that. We don't know who they are. Um, we don't know where they're from. We do know, as we just cited, nearly 600 known or suspected terrorists Apprehended, but we don't know how many of those are are, are are how many others are known or suspected terrorists could be among that Godaway group. And with the uh, w- with the situation in the Middle East now, I don't know. I think uh, I, I, I think we need to do something about our border policies.
3: Yeah, I think you know there's a growing bipartisan consensus that would agree with you on that. Dan, and that's why so many governors have reached out to Biden, Democratic governors, and said, "Hey, you need to do something." He did restart building some of the border wall, but this is like this is a long-standing problem. There's already, you know, probably hundreds of of these kinds of terrorists in the U.S., and uh, we can't really go back and take them out. Of course, we hardly deport anyone now. And you know, setting the terrorist issue aside, there is also just straight up regular rank and file criminal, um, the criminal question, and. You know, I found this stat to be really interesting. In fiscal year 2022, um, ICE agents found uh, 46,000, about 46,000 non-citizens with criminal histories, including about 200,000 with uh, assault charges, over 8,000 with sexual assault offenses, um, over 5,500 with weapons offenses, over 1,500 homicide-related, and well over 1,000 kidnapping. So... Like you said, there's a there's a lot of systemic issues at the border. I am a little heartened to see that there's some bipartisan agreement that there needs to be some bigger changes done there. But we'll see. Well, thank
2: you, as always, for your insight into these very important stories, Casey. But we are out of time. Listeners can keep up with all of our news at the center. Thank you, Dan
0: and Casey, for that update. While trying to make sure no one slips through the cracks is a problem in border enforcement, in a different way, it can be a problem in education too. In the Kalamazoo, Michigan school district, one high school mistakenly allowed half of the class of 2023 to graduate without meeting state or district requirements. Let's go back to Dan McHale to hear more on the story. Joining
2: me again today is Brendan Clary, chalkboards K through 12 editor. How are you, Brendan? I'm doing well today, Dan. How about yourself? I'm doing well, thank you. We are recording this on Monday, October 9th. Brendan, you've reported uh, this year at chalkboardnews.com about various school districts across the country essentially graduating students that may not have achieved the academic standard for their grade level that they should have. Schools, for example, in Detroit and Chicago, we've seen this at. Uh, You had a pretty interesting story this week about Kalamazoo Public Schools that admitted that uh, over half of last year's senior class from what, just one of its high schools graduated despite not meeting that criteria. Tell us more about this.
5: Yeah, so the school district, you know, said in a statement to Chalkboard last week that, you know, essentially exactly what you described, uh, the half of the graduating class of 2023 at Phoenix Alternative High School graduated, they received a diploma, and it was later found that they did not meet the criteria to do so, that they had not met state or local requirements to graduate. And so that is uh, an issue right of you know these students are able to get a to walk across the stage and the uh, superintendent of the school district you know basically said to learn about this is unacceptable you know and this is not what the school district represents and and that's sort of the position of the school district there they were uh, alerted by Michigan's Center for Educational Performance and Information, which is sort of the uh, it's, it's an agency of the Michigan, like operated by the state of Michigan that keeps track of school performance and indicators for schools in the state, and they basically sent a, a warning email saying, "Hey, your your graduation rate has an anomaly in it." So I was curious, and I wanted to know how many of those kinds of emails do they send every year, and uh, I got a response back from CEPi. That they send, they sent uh, 276 emails to individual school districts for what's called end of year mid collection emails regarding graduation related anomalies, and then the a different metric, post collection emails about potential graduation related anomalies were sent to 392 Michigan districts. And, well, and, and the question, I mean, and this is after the fact. This is after it's yeah. too late. Yeah, this is after it's too late. But they're they're gathering data to to centralize, and so they can send it to the federal Department of Education, uh, so they can have it on the the website. But they, um, and that is my understanding that it is that it is too late at this point. Like they've already graduated, and the data is in. Um, and there's there's no going back. You know. Right, withhold or you don't take the deployment. Right, back. and I can talk about that in the context of Kalamazoo. But yeah, so essentially, what stood out to me is that seven, almost seventy-five percent, almost a full three quarters of Michigan school districts, the local education agency districts in the state. Received a letter, uh, you know, out of 537, you know, districts, uh, 392 of them got an email saying, "Hey, there might be problems with your graduation rate data." And the, and CEPI was very clear that that doesn't mean that there were the kind of issues that uh, we saw in the Kalamazoo Public School, um, that high school, but you know that there is a, a warning flag of, "Hey, you might have a problem here," right? So that is very concerning in terms of you know what we've seen with different graduation rates and and meeting those criteria and and yeah I'm not good at doing math in my in
2: my head but 390 out of Five hundred and some—that's approaching
5: eighty percent, anyway, isn't it? That's- yeah, I, I, I uh, did the tally. I believe it's like seventy-two percent. So, we're like, it's kind of getting up there. But you know, it is—it's it's a shocking, shocking. And as you mentioned before, it is—it is too late, right? And so, the Kalamazoo Public School District said for these these graduates that they were not going to take their diploma away. You can't really say, "Hey, we're going to ungraduate you." You have to come back to school. But they did tell them you have an opportunity to take the courses in order to to fulfill the requirements of state and local graduation requirements. And I think that's so that if, you know, students wanted to continue to pursue, you know, higher education, they would be able to point to those and say, look, I I did complete these, you know, and that I have the, all of the the things that I need to do. So it's, it's one of those uh, situations where like, once they're out there, you know, are they actually going to come back and do different uh, online learning? And we've talked a lot about online learning and, you know, what, what kinds of things does that, does that open up? So it is, it's an interesting, you know, kind of quandary and it's, I think the school district there said, you know, this is not acceptable. This is not something that we ever want to see again. The district also said that no other high school uh, in Kalamazoo had that kind of that kind of issue. So it was centralized, and there might have been an issue with personnel too. There's a new counselor, there's a new principal at the school, so there might have been some some things. Uh, going on there, the school district was not very was not very forthcoming with those kinds of information. So it does, you know, makes you makes you wonder, like, how much of that was, you know, did something go wrong in terms of personnel or, or something like that, too.
2: So do we know if Michigan the uh, is taking steps to
5: prevent this from happening again? Well, that that's the hard part. The CEPi they are not an auditing uh, sort of agency, so they don't really have like a lot of oversight power to say, you know, you need to make sure that this is in place or have different steps. They they basically just want to make sure that the data is right, and they give school districts an opportunity to revise and and double check and make sure that everything is good. And in in this case, it did serve as a you know maybe a wake up call or an alarm of like, hey, there is something very wrong. And that's what the, the district pointed to as, okay, this is the first time we were alerted about this this problem where students graduated and they should not have. I'm not sure if there are definitive you know steps in place, if there's a way to find that out, because it does vary from the, from the reporting I've done on graduation rates. It does vary uh, a lot from district to district of you know what are the requirements and, and how do students go about those. Brendan, thank you for your insight into this, but we are out of time. Listeners can keep up with this story
2: and all stories related to K 12 education at chalkboardnews.com.
0: Thank you, Dan and Brendan, for that update. While education has a large impact on the lives of individuals in the wider community, so does war. The war between Israel and Hamas will likely have impacts on the global economy, but they will depend on the scope and duration of the conflict. Joining me to help us understand more is PhD economist Dr. Orfe Divangi. Dr. O, great to see you. Great to be with you. We are taping this on as I said, Monday, October 9th, uh, early in the morning. I'm um, still a lot of, of, of news coming in. of course, Palestine uh, or Hamas, I should say, conducted what is just objectively an absolutely horrible you know raid into Israel you know, taking hostages and killing people uh, over the weekend. The videos that were coming out are just shocking the markets are reacting to this uh and there's there's a lot of obviously going on this is a developing story we're going to try to capture it just in this moment to talk about the economic impact of something sudden and something unexpected oil futures on sunday went crazy the dow went down uh, i mean the, the excuse me the dow futures went down to you know like 200 points you know sunday afternoon you know we're Still, sort of making sense of what's going on over in, in Israel right now, um, but we do know that it appears that Israel has shut off electricity now to the Gaza Strip. So this is this is a full on. I mean, there are reports that Israel has things under control inside of the border, but you know that this is you know U.S. sent warships headed over that direction. There's a lot of things that are that are going on. Meanwhile you know over in ukraine there's already a war that's going on and uh, and of course you know russia is an energy producing country what is now a second issue on the in sort of the, the global sphere mean to the economy specifically inside of the energy sector
6: well let, let me just start with saying you know my heart to, and thoughts and prayers go out to the families that are affected that are caught in the middle of this uh, senseless violence it's absolutely terrible. You know there are families in the middle of this, and I feel uh, I feel awful uh, to that we're even having to t- do this podcast and talk about this. In terms of the economy, well, you know, increased volatility. You know, the we're going to see the return of volatility, and it was already coming back a little bit with the stronger than expected employment report. Uh, tr- investors had no idea how to interpret this the strong three hundred thirty six thousand job gain that we saw that we got from the Bureau of Labor Statistics on Friday. And so you got an increase in bond, soaring bond yields uh, as a result, uh, increase in bond yields, There's then another, then a little bit of a, a, a pullback and then another increase, right? And then over the weekend, we and then we hear this conflict and the same thing's happening. Energy prices that were, by the way, starting to come down a little bit uh, are coming back up again. Oil prices coming back up again. But historically, let's be honest, historically, what's happened is uh, neither one of the countries involved in the conflict, neither one of the territories involved are probably big oil producers. So, you know, uh, to the extent that Saudi Arabia and Iran are not necessarily involved, you know, you're not expected to see uh, a huge change in oil prices, uh, because oil prices will definitely only really reflect... Changes in the supply of oil, and that will have to come from Iran and, and or Saudi Arabia. You have perhaps uh military aid and defense and an increase in defense spending in the United States, right? And across the across the world, in fact. If of course this lasts longer than than we want it to, you know, you also have kind of global economic confidence. People are gonna be a little bit worried, and you could you could get this flight to safety, which Right, the flight to safety might actually be good to bring down yields a little bit. You know, with people buying up U.S. Treasuries, uh, you know, seeking safe haven assets. Right, uh, lower risk appetite. Right, and so the, the stock market might might feel that a little bit. Right, people are, are a bit more risk averse, more worried about the future, and so they're they're moving to safety. And so yes, those are factors that might impact it. You also have resources that are being diverted away from other, you know, important productive usage to now go towards this other important issue. Okay? how do we to, how do we fix this problem out in the Middle East? Uh, you know, humanitarian causes. Uh, every every all the funds that might have to be diverted towards the region in order to support those who are in trouble right now and the populations that are affected. So all of those factors are, you know, going to be uh, affecting the global economy and also, uh, in particular, Israel and its allies, right? To some extent, and so that's uh, that's kind of how I see this play out.
0: Is it fair to say the longer that that a conflict is protracted, the more damage? It, that's right, absolutely. That's, you is, know it, is it I really mean. just as simple as that? I, I, absolutely.
6: I mean, wars are terrible. Uh, people remember we we talk about this all the time you know i tell i say you know when you talk about the economy you're talking about people it's people and their decisions and their activities and so if a war destroys people it destroys the economy it destroys the global economy it hurts the us economy it hurts everyone if it's a quick short thing then you know the market will tumble a little bit and that will actually bring some opportunities for people who are sitting on the sidelines and thinking, hey, you know, should I buy the stock? Should I get in on this big, nice, great company that might be a little overpriced because price to earnings ratio is a little too high. And then, but overall, if the conflict lasts, right, then it hurts everyone. Uh, And it it will hurt equities for sure.
0: I appreciate your thoughts on that. I mean, we're still at this point you know, a little bit hypothetical. I mean, this is October 6th was the day of the attacks. We're not sure just yet as how long this will last, but I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it up front and we'll monitor this obviously as we go along. Dr. O, jobs report came in uh, last week and to say that it was a stunner would be perhaps an understatement. 336,000 jobs uh, added in September A lot of people in the workforce or not necessarily in the workforce, people looking for other opportunities are like, uh, that doesn't sound right to me. When you peel back the numbers and you take a look at it, the overwhelming majority of these jobs were in what segments, sir? Well, yeah,
6: 70% of job gains were in the government sector, uh, healthcare, and uh, leisure and hospitality Basically, the latter two sectors were sectors that had yet to get back to employment levels, pre-pandemic employment levels. But the government sectors is continuing to add jobs, right? State, local, federal government, adding jobs. And and at the federal level, we're seeing a ton of borrowing, right? Government borrowing, large... I, I, I can't remember what it was. It was something like a 23% increase in treasury, in the size of treasury is- issuances going into 2024, which is going to add a ton of upward pressure on bond yields, right? And so, if you're worried, if you're wondering why interest rates are rising so much, yes, it's a strong U.S. economy, but part of that expansion comes from the fact that the U.S. government is borrowing a ton and spending a lot, and uh, and that increase in government borrowing. At a time where the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet, basically the biggest buyer of treasuries is no longer buying them. You're going to have a ton of upward pressure on yields. And that's basically what's happening. But going back to the jobs report, you know, amazing, right? Amazing. It's a good jobs report overall because people have jobs, right? So more, more, more people working. But at the same time, the, the wage growth, hourly earnings were down slightly moderated from 4.3% to 4.2%. And so that means that to me is indicative of an increase in labor supply, right? Uh, labor demand and labor supply coming into better balance. And I think that's good news for the US economy. Now, of course, you know, you know, know, when you think about this, this government, we talked about this already, government sector adding 22%, m- making up 22% of the job gains. Uh, and that's probably why a lot of people in most industries in most industries, feel like, what's going on? I've been waiting. You know, there's people writing to me on LinkedIn saying, "Hey, you know, I." And there's so many people that are waiting for a job that have been out there looking for work that are not finding work. How could you possibly tell me this economy is still booming like it is? I'll I'll take I'll take an example right now, you know, and I'll pass it back to you, uh, Mister James McGovern you know, wrote to me open to work. He says, I remain skeptical of the employment numbers. If you're on LinkedIn, anyone can observe a profound increase in the usage of the hashtag open to work,
0: which suggests that unemployment is increasing. Appreciate the insights as always. Well, that will do it for another week of the center square radio hour, the center square radio hours production of America's talking network produced by Eliana Kronodal. If you missed some of today's show, you can find it at America's talking.com. To add the Center Square Radio Hour to your station, contact us at syndicate at franklinnews.org. I'm Chris Krug. On behalf of everyone at the Franklin News Foundation, thank you for
5: listening to the Center Square Radio Hour.